The young woman drifted off to sleep peacefully on her living room couch. She began to dream of all things good. The beach, the ocean, the salty air. But suddenly, she was awake. She could hear the front door as it creaked open, and footsteps walking toward her. She turned to see who had entered her home, but she couldn't. She couldn't move at all. She tried to yell out, Who's there? But her screaming was silent. And the object was getting closer and closer and closer. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast dedicated to Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Kaur, and I want to talk to you today about hypnagogia. Ever heard of it? Well, you're about to. The story I shared in the intro of this podcast has to do with hypnagogia, but I also just made it up. The story, that is. I just needed an intro, but it definitely ties into our topic today. Sleep paralysis. A form of hypnagogia. Of course, I'll also tie in some history and a place I stood. Or rather, didn't stand because I couldn't freaking move. All of this is breaking ground for our scary story October, and yet, Keeping it historical, folks. Are you ready, dear listeners? Let's go. Hypnagogia. Say it with me. Hypnagogia. Hypnagogia is the transitional state of consciousness between wakefulness and sleep. It's the opposite of hypnopompia, which is the transitional state that occurs before you wake up. During the hypnagogia state, Your sense of here and now transitions from the real world into the dream world. When this happens, people commonly experience hallucinations, lucid dreaming, body jerks, and sleep paralysis. Let's talk about sleep paralysis. Has this ever happened to you? Sleepfoundation.org defines sleep paralysis as a temporary loss of muscle control just after falling asleep or before waking up. Sleep paralysis frequently involves hallucinations or a feeling of suffocation. No one knows exactly what causes sleep paralysis, but it is linked to sleep disorders and certain mental health conditions. What? I have a friend named Josh, and I casually asked him if he's ever experienced sleep paralysis. Is that where you wake up? but you can't move and you start to panic because you literally can't move and then you try to move, but you can't because it feels like your whole body is paralyzed. And then you really start to panic because you think someone is going to break into your house and you're trying to figure out how in the heck you can stop them because you literally can't move and your whole family is now in danger. Oh yeah, I've experienced that maybe once or twice. Yes, that's exactly what happens during sleep paralysis. I visited a woman recently named Erica from Charlotte. We were chatting about her haunted house, but that's for next week's episode. 
I asked her if she had ever experienced sleep paralysis. Oh yeah, she said, her eyes getting wide. Just once. I couldn't get comfortable on my bed, so I went to the couch. I fell asleep, but then I was fully awake. The problem was I couldn't move at all. I was laying on my side, but I could see something right next to me, a presence of some kind, and it was pushing on my chest. I tried to scream, to get up and run away, but I just couldn't move. Somehow, I rolled myself off the couch. There was no one there. I jumped up and ran back to the bedroom. Erica's story also sounds just like what others say about sleep paralysis. And I found some stories on BuzzFeed, which of course, did not disappoint. Here are a few more. This one was submitted by Jen Clayton via Facebook. I get sleep paralysis quite a lot, but you don't get used to it. It's just intense pressure holding you down. I can't speak. I can usually see the shadow of a dark figure out of the corner of my eye, but I can't turn my head to look at it. That's pretty terrifying. Luckily for me, my partner is now used to this, and we have a code. I start breathing really quickly and loudly, and if he notices that, then he helps me snap out of it. The next story was submitted by Holly H49AC058B2. Jeez, lady. Simplify your life. The first time it happened to me was when I took a nap during the day. I was lying on my side, facing away from my door, when I woke up to the sound of my door closing. I tried to turn around to see who had come into my room, but I couldn't move. My eyes were wide with terror. I could see everything in my room. I heard this thing walk around my room. Then it sat on my bed and I could feel the bed dip from its weight. It then shuffled toward me and it felt like it began to spoon me. Ew. It was extremely tall. I was trying to move so hard, but I was just lying still. The thing started breathing on my neck and tickling my back. God, It then stood up and left after a few minutes. This was the most terrifying thing that has ever happened to me. And here's another story. Just one more. This one was submitted by... Man. I'm just going to say Sophie W. And skip all the numbers and letters. I started experiencing sleep paralysis during the exam period of my first year at university. A very stressful time for me. The first time it happened, I woke up with the feeling I was being suffocated. My bed was literally swallowing me up. The more I panicked and the faster my pulse and breathing became the quicker I was disappearing into my bed. I couldn't move a muscle and my attempts to scream were silent. After I calmed myself down, I kind of drifted out of my paralyzed state and woke up completely. The second time it happened, I awoke to see a very tall man standing by my door, holding something behind his back and moving towards me very slowly. Once again, I couldn't move and I couldn't make a sound. It was definitely the most terrifying experience. So, what the heck is going on here? Are these people suffering from a mental episode? Do they need to seek counseling? Is it all in their head? Or are they truly being attacked by a demon? Um, yes. Well, no. Okay, let me explain. Or rather, let sleepfoundation.org, who consulted Dr. Kara Baggett, a psychiatrist, explain. From the article. Experts state that roughly 20% of people have an episode of sleep paralysis, at least occasionally. In as many as 75% of these episodes, 
the sleeper has a hallucination. End quote. Here is an explanation as to why one becomes paralyzed while sleeping. Quote, as a person drifts off to sleep, their body begins to cycle through two types of sleep, rapid eye movement, REM sleep, and non-rapid eye movement, NREM sleep. During REM sleep, there is a heightened level of activity in the brain, and breathing, blood pressure, and heart rate increase. This is also the type of sleep characterized by rich and detailed dreams and nightmares. The article continues, Paradoxically, I don't know if I said that right, I'm going to say it again. Paradoxically, during REM sleep, the body enters a state of temporary paralysis called muscle atonia. This state is likely a mechanism to prevent sleepers from injuring themselves by acting out their dreams. Yo, you've had some crazy dreams before? Could you imagine if (laughs) your body started acting them out in your sleep? I don't know, like climbing a mountain and then jumping off of it so you could fly? Or, I don't know beating somebody up with like a baseball bat. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm very actually thankful that our body does this so that we can't act out our dreams. Okay, so we have a scientific explanation for what sometimes happens to people. But what about the hallucinations? Are those real? Well, sleepfoundation.org has something to say about those hallucinations. When sleep paralysis is accompanied by a sleep-related hallucination, the person then begins to see, hear, feel, or sense changes in their environment that do not actually exist. Hallucinations may be simple, stationary images, or more complex and multisensory intruder, incubus, or vestibular motor hallucinations. Uh, what in the world did I just say? I have no idea. But let me break it down for you according to them. First, there's the intruder hallucinations. An intruder hallucination describes seeing or otherwise sensing something threatening in the bedroom, like a dangerous person or a menacing presence. This type of hallucination often occurs alongside incubus hallucinations. Now, I know what you're saying to yourself. You know the band incubus, but what is an incubus hallucination? Well, let me tell you, they are chest pressure hallucinations, also called incubus hallucinations. A person may feel like they are suffocating or that something is pressing on their chest. Then there's the vestibular motor hallucinations. A vestibular motor hallucination involves imagined sensations in the body, including movement, out-of-body experiences, or feelings of bliss. It seems that nothing is really attacking those of us that have experienced this phenomenon. It's just a hallucination brought on by our own sleep deprivation or the stress we might be experiencing, right? Well, yes, but also let's just address the dark shape hovering above us in the room. Sleepfoundation.org further explains the sleep demons. Ugh, bleh. Quote, Societies throughout history have developed their own explanations for these experiences, each stemming from a unique cultural context. End quote. Oh boy, what I'm about to read to you, this is going to have a whole bunch of words and I have to pronounce them, which I cannot pronounce them. So, um, hey, Grace, please. Ready for the first one? <laughs> 
Okay, stop laughing at yourself, Holly. Lilitu. Some of the earliest writing related to sleep paralysis comes from Mesopotamia around 2400 BC. These accounts refer to Lilitu, a female demon. Researchers believe that it is from this early folklore that the concepts of incubus, succubus, I don't know what that is, and the nightmare descended. The next demon, Nightmare. All right, this is actually a demon name. In Europe during the Middle Ages, the term night-mare referred to a supernatural entity, typically female, that positioned herself on top of a person's chest to suffocate them. Medical explanations up to the 20th century suggested that a nightmare was caused by stagnant blood or vapors rising from the stomach and affecting the nervous system. Okay. On to our next demon, Agrog, the old hag phenomenon. Agrog was described by residents of Newfoundland in the 1970s. Wait, stop. Did you hear me? You heard me, right? I said 1970s. I didn't say 1870s or 1770s. I said 1970s. Believers attribute paralysis, pressure on the chest, and other symptoms to blood that has stagnated, excessive work, or an enemy who wants to harm the sleeper. All right, next sleep demon, Pisadiria. In Brazilian folklore, a Pisadiria is an old woman who lies in wait on roofs and walks on the chests of people who sleep on their back with a full stomach. Hmm. This character takes on slightly different forms and features in different parts of the country. Okay, this next one, this next sleep demon is Kanashibari. Kanashibari? Sure, it's a Japanese name for an experience between sleep and wakefulness involving paralysis, fear, anxiety, and sometimes hallucinations. The term, oh, they're going to make me say it again. Kanashibari comes from a similar sounding word that describes the magical powers of a Buddhist deity which monks were believed to be capable of harnessing to paralyze others. Now, taking a break from our sleep demons here, I have a friend named Mas, and he's from Japan and lives in Japan, but he went to school in Elma. And he and I went on a little trip up to Traverse City once, and we were coming back down, (laughs) and we were trying to freak each other out with ghost stories. And all of his ghost stories started like this. There was this ghost with no face. And after maybe like the third one with this faceless ghost, I said, what? None of your ghosts have faces in Japan? And he said, do your ghosts have faces in America? And I said, I think they do, but maybe they don't. No, I think they do. Anyway, back to our demons. The next one is gin, not the drink. J-I-N-N. Some people in Egypt attribute sleep paralysis to jinn, J-I-N-N, which are supernatural creatures associated with witchcraft, madness, and nightmares. These creatures are said to be able to terrify or possess a sleeping person. So these demons have names, and they are found around the world culturally. But still, these are only hallucinations, y'all. Right? See, I didn't realize sleep paralysis was a thing 
until listening to Jen Carpenter talk about it during one of her Halloween episodes on the Violent Ends podcast. I listened in awe, thinking, OMG, this has happened to me. And it happened to me in one of the creepiest places in Michigan, Beaver Island. Now, Beaver Island isn't necessarily creepy itself, but if you don't know the history of Beaver Island, then you are going to get a shortened version of it right now. From the Beaver Island Boat Company, quote, In 1847, James Jesse Strange, yes, that is his strange last name, brought his small band of Mormons to Beaver Island, and in 1849, the town of St. James was established. Get it? James Strange established a town called St. James, after himself, of course. Anyhow, Strange had himself crowned king, and was the only king ever crowned in the United States. He was an extremely intelligent man, and was elected to Michigan State Legislature for two terms. Strange was shot on June 16, 1856. He was removed from the island and died in Wisconsin. And quote. What the website really fails to mention is all of the nutty shenanigans that took place on the island while the intelligent St. James Jesse Strange was king. He was so gross and involved in polygamy and taking child brides. If you want more info on him, check out Violent Ends podcast episode 75. But back to me. Staying the night in the Beaver Island lighthouse. I forgot to tell you, I stayed the night in the lighthouse. And how in the heck did I end up there? Well, the year was 1997. Labor Day weekend, in fact. I had just started my senior year at Central Michigan University, and I had a a friend who was finishing up his internship on Beaver Island. He had been there all summer as a camp counselor for troubled youth. He was studying to be a social worker. Okay, see, in 1975, the Charlevoix Public Schools purchased the lighthouse and the surrounding area for a dollar. And then in 1978, the district founded an alternative school for youth aged 16 to 21. The school district has operated an environmental and vocational educational center in the Keeper's Dwelling. Maintenance and restoration of the structure is part of the curriculum. Okay, that was kind of a paraphrased quote from Wikipedia. So, my friend had volunteered to help close up the camp Labor Day weekend, so he invited me, his best friend, and his best friend's girlfriend. On that Saturday afternoon, he and I drove up to Charlevoix from Mount Pleasant, because we were both at CMU. We boarded a little airplane because there was no way my friend was going to spend time on the ferry. The flight was only 15 minutes. Anyhow. We landed on the island, and I was trying to remember how we got to the lighthouse. I think the camp had a truck, and there was one supervisor left who collected us and our things. Anyhow, I remember seeing this lighthouse and thinking, wow, this is absolutely gorgeous. And I had a thing for lighthouses back then. And I was going to get to stay the night in one. Oh boy. Let's chat briefly about the Beaver Island Headlight which is what I guess its official name is. According to good old trusty Wikipedia, the lighthouse is located high on a bluff on the southern tip of Beaver Island. The 46-foot, 
cylindrical tower was built in 1858. That's before the Civil War to replace an 1852 tower. Also, if you're paying attention to dates, this is when King Strange was alive and mentally not well, living on the island. I wonder what his role was in all of this. Anyhow, in 1866, the attached yellow brick lighthouse keeper's dwelling was constructed. A frame addition was added to the keeper's quarters to accommodate assistant keepers. Oh, yeah. Want to know someone else who lived in the Beaver Island Headlight house? A woman by the name of Elizabeth Williams. According to John Robinson, a local Michigan historian who I really want to meet, quote, In 1869, 25-year-old Elizabeth and her husband Clement moved to Beaver Island, where Clement became head lighthouse keeper. Not long afterward, he came down with an illness, and Elizabeth took over keeper duties, a job she truly enjoyed, as she loved being near the water. Clement attempted to save the crew members of a schooner that sank in the harbor. Tragically, he drowned in his heroic attempt, and Elizabeth right then devoted her life to taking care of the lighthouse. Promote Michigan says she was quoted as saying, quote, I was weak from sorrow but realized that though the life that was dearest to me had gone, yet there were others out on the dark and treacherous waters who needed to catch the rays of the shining light from my lighthouse tower. End quote. So yeah, Elizabeth also slept in the same building I was about to sleep in. How fun. Historically, Beaver Island has had a lot of crazy happening. There were Mormon believers and non-believers mixing up and arguing quite a bit in the 1800s. From LighthouseFriends.com, quote, As nearly all non-believers had left the island, the next two lighthouse keepers were Strangeites. <laughs> oh, sorry. After James Strange was assassinated in 1856, most Strangeites were expelled from the island, and Patrick Looney, I love these last names, one of the island's original settlers returned to the island and was subsequently appointed keeper. One of the few strange heights to remain on the island was Harrison Tip Miller, who was appointed keeper in 1863. Tip's father followed Brigham Young to Utah after the assassination of Joseph Smith, the Mormon founder. But after losing faith in Young, Tip Miller relocated to Beaver Island and joined the strange heights. I'm sorry. I'm so trying not to laugh. I stop laughing. Okay. <laughs> there, nothing is funny. I just I don't know what's get. Okay. Tip Miller found it hard to provide for his wife and ten children on his keeper's salary, so he fished, made barrels, and served as a mail carrier on the side. And quote. So all of that is pretty amazing. And the reason I told you about all of that was to show you that there was a lot of bizarre people with strange last names living in this lighthouse, although Elizabeth Williams was more of a hero. Also, I'm not saying Looney is a strange last name. It's just interesting when you pair it with the strange and the strangeites. But let's jump forward or jump back. I'm kind of confused right now, to 1997. My friend showed me around the lighthouse and around the grounds and outer buildings. He asked where I wanted to sleep. Well, the keeper's quarters, of course. No, Holly, no. 
We were in the older part of the lighthouse, the yellow brick part. First floor, first room to the right of the front door. I remember laughing that there were a set of bunk beds in the rooms and a picture of John F. Kennedy hung on the wall. My friend jumped on the top bunk and I swear, I stood in the doorway, pajamas on, teeth brushed, living out a scene from the movie Big. Well, okay then, I'll take the bottom bunk. But I could not get comfortable and my brain wouldn't turn off. I started thinking about all the people that had lived in the lighthouse and stayed within its walls and under its roof, even though I didn't really know the specifics at that time. But I definitely had seen some paintings and pictures and historical depictions of people hanging on the walls. There was also that damn picture of John F. Kennedy, which, yeah, handsome fella, revered 35th president, but his portrait doesn't belong on the wall of a bedroom. So I had that going against me too. I probably drifted asleep as my friend snored on the bunk above me, but then I was awake. I was uneasy. I was terrified. I could feel panic creeping in and my heart began to race. Except I could not move. My God, I couldn't move. And this part is something I don't believe. Except that I lived it, so I guess I have to believe it. Someone else was in that room with us. I could sense a different presence, and weirdly, it felt like a little girl. She seemed to be laughing at me, tormenting me. And the picture of John F. Kennedy kept twisting into a different face. It was horrible, and there was nothing I could do. I tried to scream and I couldn't. I tried to get my friend's attention, but nope. I was completely on my own. Finally, after what felt like hours, but was probably just minutes, I was able to move. I laid in the bed, shaking, sweating, kind of like the Fresh Prince song. Pulled the covers up over my head and said, Oh, please do something with John F. Kennedy's picture. Good God. I barely got any sleep that night, and my friend slept like a baby. Jerk. We met his friends down at the ferry dock in the morning and had a blast that night in the old part of the lighthouse. We tried to get a signal on the TV, and though the picture was grainy, we learned that Princess Diana had been in a car accident. I wasn't that concerned. No way could she die. Later that night, all four of us slept upstairs in a newer part of the lighthouse, which was still old as hell and full of bunk beds again, (laughs) but I slept just fine. The next day, I took video of the lighthouse, and I should really rewatch it, and then we headed back to Mount Pleasant. But actually, we stopped to see my friend's family in Traverse City first. It was there that I found out that Princess Diana had died due to the injuries she had sustained in the car accident. I really felt sad about this, actually. My friend and I stopped by my aunt's house on Pretty Lake in Macosta, Michigan, because there was a small family gathering there to celebrate Labor Day. It was really kind of, no, it really was good to be with my aunt and my cousins, but also my sister was there, people who were also shocked about Princess Diana. I also tried to tell them about my bizarro episode staying in the lighthouse, but it just sounded too made up, too weird. I kept it to myself for a long time. 
until it happened again. In the year 2000, while I was staying the night in Walnut Grove, Minnesota. But that story will have to wait for a different episode. (laughs) My life is weird, right? But wait, there's more. I recorded this episode, was about to add my music and release it, but then something was brought to my attention. There are many stories about Beaver Island, many ghost stories about Beaver Island, and not just ghost stories about the island, but about the GD Lighthouse. So now that I'm freaking myself right out, let me share one of these stories with you now. A group, which I think might be two dudes, called Detroit Paranormal Expeditions, traveled to Beaver Island in... Well, I couldn't find the date as to when, but an article was written by Ken Haddad from News 4 in Detroit on October 9th, 2023, which was last week. What the DPX saw, or rather heard, was creepy. Let me quote them now. The title of this article, or like the subtitle, Shipwreck, I Told You to Go, EVP at Beaver Island Head Lighthouse. Beaver Island, Michigan. Wait, before we get started, EVP means electronic voice phenomenon. EVPs are sounds found on electric recordings that are interpreted as spirit voices. Quote, during a trip to Beaver Island to do a paranormal presentation, the DPX team decided to travel to the island's remote southern end to visit the Beaver Island Head Lighthouse. As soon as the team pulled up, The psychic, who was along for the trip, saw a woman in a white dress standing on the porch of the lighthouse. End quote. This is me melting. Could this be the same woman slash girl that I had seen and heard in 1997? You know, my sleep demon, my hallucination. Quote, the woman was pointing back toward the road saying, go. You need to leave now. And the feeling the psychic picked up was that the woman was trying to protect us from something darker in the house, end quote. Okay, so wait, the spirit that tortured me was not trying to protect me. So, no, not the same ghostly gal. The DPX team did not go into the keeper's dwelling where I had spent the night, but they did go into the lighthouse. Quote, the team decided to do a short 20-minute EVP session where they ask questions and see if they pick up voices on the recording that they didn't hear in the moment. End quote. Oh, geez. I guess I'm going to read these, but if you want to hear the actual recordings, go to DetroitParanormalExpeditions.com. And just for your knowledge, I did not listen to the actual recordings because, uh uh-uh, no. Back to the article. Quote, upon listening back to the audio, a very loud, quote, shipwreck, I told you to go, is heard at nine seconds after Jeff, he must be one of the paranormal investigators, asks a spirit to shake a door handle, and Todd jokes about the door opening. No one in the room heard, shipwreck, I told you to go, 
when it was said, and it sounds very angry. Oh, so it's more like this. Shipwreck, I told you to go. Anyway, end quote. Well, now they've gone and done it. The article continues. What's interesting is that the I told you to go part makes sense in the context of the woman our psychic saw. And shipwreck actually makes sense, too. One of the lighthouse's first keepers in the mid-1800s was involved in numerous shipwreck crew recoveries off the coast of the island. End quote. That was all a quote. There are more creepy questions like, Do you choose to stay here or are you stuck? Answer. Stuck. Question. What is your favorite Bible verse? Unexplained response. Matthew. A command. Tell us your name. And the response was, John F. Kennedy. Oswald acted alone. I made that one up, although the latter part is true. Yep, I meant to release my episode today, Wednesday, but I just had to tell you about this spooky crap that people supposedly heard while spending the night in the same lighthouse I slept inside. What do you think? Is it a bunch of hooey? Could there be something to these ghostly whispers? Even just saying that made me get chills. Take a listen and let me know if you think I could handle it. So, that's it. That's all I have for you today. But let me preview next week's episode and tell you about a really cool event coming up. Next week, I'm going to do a special Halloween-y ghostly tales episode because, hey, it's Halloween. Then... I'm going to be hosting a crazy cool event that I really, really, really hope you will attend. It is sponsored by the Eaton County Historical Commission, and it's their happy hour. On October 29th at 2 p.m. at the historic and lovely Center Eaton Church, I will be telling the story of a local family who helped settle Eaton Township, build Center Eaton Church, and whose descendants have remained in the area. I'll also share some of my secrets, they aren't secrets, I use to investigate and research my stories. Sure to be included are characters from previous episodes, morbidly amazing tales, and a special surprise guest. Oh, and I just need you to know, children who aren't really, really into history and podcasts probably should skip this one. Thank you for joining me today. My sources were sleepfoundation.org, a whole lot of websites about Beaver Island, the podcast Violent Ends, the historian John Robinson, and myself for living through a nightmare that happened on Beaver Island. But hey, at least I wasn't one of those strangeites, right? But maybe that little girl wanted me to be. Okay, anyways, for a complete list of sources, please check out my Buzzsprout page, and I'll see you next week on Where They Stood. (laughs) 